Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We human beings foolishly trust in our own eyes. We look at other people and assume that we understand what we see and then we make judgments. But is it really possible to see? When you look at a field freshly planted, can you point out which seed will be most productive? Of course you can see the field, and you may even know where the seeds are planted, but you have no clue what's going to happen. The result is in the seeds, but this result is hidden from you in plain sight from the foundation of the world. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 305 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've been talking about the proclamation of the kingdom from the very outset of the Gospel of Matthew. And I'll keep saying it, Rich, because it's important. People typically dismiss the genealogy because they don't understand it or because they reduce the sacred text to just another historical document. And it's much more than that. It's much more beautiful and much more powerful than some lame documentary. And in the genealogy, as you know, we have a proposition of Jesus, the Son of Man, as the Shepherd King. And I can only say that because we contextualize Jesus as a shepherd later in the Gospel of Matthew in the city of David. And in setting this tone from the very beginning, Matthew is setting us up for the proclamation of the kingdom. Because just like Father Paul always says, there's no flock without a shepherd. Likewise, there's no kingdom without a king. And so now we've come to this turning point in Matthew, which began last week with the famous parables of the kingdom. And it's important that they're proclaimed as parables, that they're mashalik in the Ezekielian sense, because what we will try to do as human beings is pin Jesus down on the location of the kingdom. But you can't do that. The kingdom's not here yet. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tares. We are stuck with each other until the kingdom comes. And that's the way that Jesus will continue to deal as parable with the proclamation of the kingdom and its implication for our life now today. Looking for the kingdom and trying to see where the kingdom is coming from. You know, it's so important when you said, Father, about how we don't have the kingdom with us right now. 
we have to wait for the kingdom. Yes, the threshold is here, but it has not been inaugurated yet. The kingdom is being announced. Jesus is the emissary of the kingdom, rounding up all those who want to be members, who want to be citizens of this kingdom. And this series of parables all about the sowing and the fruit and the plants and all these agricultural metaphors. When I used to teach the Sermon on the Mount in Sunday school, you know, how you're supposed to fast, but no one can see you, and how are you supposed to pray, but no one can see you, and you're supposed to do righteous acts, but even you yourself aren't allowed to see your own righteous acts. Your left hand is not allowed to see what your right hand is doing. If someone is actually doing this, what is the difference between someone who's praying according to the Sermon on the Mount and someone who doesn't pray at all? What is the difference between someone who fasts according to the Sermon on the Mount and someone who doesn't fast at all? According to you, nothing. You can't tell the difference. You can't see the difference. You don't know who is doing the right thing and who is doing the wrong thing. Only God knows. And that's the point. Human beings aren't allowed to see who is doing the correct pious actions and who isn't because it's all supposed to be hidden. So the only time you know that someone is doing something incorrectly is if they're acting piously externally where people can see it. That's the only way you know that someone is acting incorrectly is if they appear to be acting correctly. Why? Because they don't care about what God thinks. They care about what human beings think. So as we go through these agricultural parables of the sower and of the tares in the wheat and of the upcoming parable, the theme that runs all the way through is that you don't know where the fruit is coming from. You don't know what is going to bear fruit. You are not equipped to know what plant is going to bear fruit and what isn't. And God doesn't care which one won't or will produce fruit. He only cares about which one has produced fruit. Stop trying to judge who is worthy of producing fruit and who is not worthy of producing fruit. God only cares about who does and does not bear fruit. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. When Allah and I were choosing a name for our youngest child, Dahlia, I looked to Ezekiel, to the story that Matthew is quoting here about how the Lord took the sprig and planted it, and it became a mighty tree. The word is daliot, from the word for branches in Ezekiel, daliot. And, of course, she's our youngest. So it's a beautiful story because you plant the smallest sprig, and it grows up to be this mighty tree, and its branches then become a place where life can flourish. Father Paul was just talking about the swarms of life on the earth. Because God's intent for his creation is that we all live together, not just humans with other humans, but all the earth mammals live together. That's why this is so powerful. This vision of the kingdom in Matthew is totally inclusive of all life, which was the Lord's intent from the beginning. But it's this idea that something that appears small and weak to you now that you would dismiss 
if you were to try to separate the wheat from the tares before the time, you would dismiss the mustard seed, you would dismiss the sprig, and then you would lose the opportunity for this mighty tree, this magisterial tree, to grow, to become a place where everyone can find refuge together in its branches. The seed is so small and so insignificant that human beings would say it's not significant. And how absurd it is for a farmer to take one mustard seed, this tiny seed, and go and plant it in the field and make this effort for something that's so negligible. Why would he bother? Why would he put his effort into that? What I find so interesting about this is the parable is so short and compact. He took a tiny seed and it grew into such a big tree that it benefited everybody around. This is the kingdom itself. It's so small and insignificant, yet you have no idea what fruit it's going to bear. Jesus keeps hitting home. You don't know what fruit it's going to bear. The sower sows, and he doesn't know where it's going to bear fruit until it bears fruit. The enemy puts tares in with the wheat, but you don't know what's going to bear fruit and what isn't until it's time for harvest. Even if you plant the smallest of seeds, you don't know what's going to bear the most fruit. We will disengage with people and we exclude people because they're not qualified, they're not equipped, and they're not going to be able to do what we need them to do. We don't know, though. My wife's favorite scene from the Brothers Karamazov is this contrast between this itinerant monk who's traveling around, who shows up at the monastery, who is capable, according to him, to capture demons and kill demons. And he's this wonderful holy man. And when someone comes to him and asks for advice, the first thing he asks is, do you follow the fasts? Completely going against what is happening in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He's wondering who is capable of bearing fruit. And if you're not following these rules, then you're not capable of bearing fruit. He wants to eliminate the tares from the field before it's harvest time. Alyosha, who fasted the entire day without realizing that he was fasting, his left hand didn't know that his right hand had put a piece of bread in his pocket. What Alyosha demonstrated is that he fasted, he performed acts of righteousness without realizing that he did it. So who is the holy man according to Matthew? According to Matthew, Alyosha would be the holy man because he bore fruit without intending to. This holy man bore no fruit. So not judging before the time is what Matthew is trying to get through our thick skull. Look, it's very simple. We make this way more complicated than it needs to be, mostly because of our convoluted theologies. In business, if you have a project, you don't know whether or not the project is a success not until it's done, but until you even wait after its completion for a certain amount of time to see what the result of the project is. Period. It's not mystical. It's very basic. You cannot say that something was a success until you have given it enough time, not just to complete the work, but to sit back and wait until the work can be measured. It's called return on investment. If a project promises a certain amount of savings, you have to see whether or not what you did will produce that savings, period. 
This is how we have to think about Matthew. We have to get our heads out of the clouds and into the text. That's why if you don't work for a living, you can't understand what Matthew is saying. Because people who work for a living know that the work itself is not a credit to you. You have to wait to see the evaluation of the work. And sometimes it takes years, not months. How many times have you been in a job where after an executive has left, you realize that what they did was correct or what they did was incorrect? At the time they're doing it, everyone claps because they want to keep their job. But we all know it takes time to see the results. So let's be practical in the way that we discuss these matters. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. It's the same theme. The kingdom cannot be discerned until the project is complete and there's been enough time to evaluate the result. You can't tell the difference between a piece of dough without leaven and a piece of dough with leaven at the beginning of the baking process. That's the point. And the mindset the disciple of Matthew has to be in is that we are all like that lump of dough. We cannot be discerned. How can you tell which has the little bit of leaven and which doesn't? This example is Pauline through and through. That it's the agitation of the opponents of the gospel in Galatians that caused the bread of the gospel to rise. It's a very powerful metaphor in our tradition during the Paschal season. But just keep it down to earth. When you complete your test for an exam in the semester, you're happy because the work is done, but you can't celebrate till you get the grade. You don't know if you passed or failed. You can't congratulate someone for going to class and taking the test. They can feel relief, but it's no victory until the grades come. That's how you have to understand the kingdom. And remember that in Matthew, the metaphor is meant to control our behavior in this life. Because if there's no difference between you and the other one whom you decide is unrighteous, you're in a pickle. Because most Christians are like the foolish monk in the brothers Karamazov. They really think there's a difference between them and everybody else. They couch it in false humility. How they love everybody. Love the sinner, hate the sin. No! If you're scriptural, the only one under judgment is you. So take a chill pill and be merciful so that the Lord will not judge you according to your human standard, which is broken. Father, you and I were recently looking at different community projects and what they were doing for people. And, you know, there was one project helping poor children get better test scores. It was featured on 60 Minutes. The guy won prizes. The guy was getting all kinds of funding for his nonprofit organization. And even he was saying, we'll see if it's success 10 years from now. 
He said this during a 60 Minutes interview that was shown on national TV and everyone was excited and there were newspaper articles written about it and everything. Well, just a few years down the road, the guy's giving himself a half a million dollar salary. Test scores are not as high as they were hoping. And teacher turnover is nearly 100% because it's miserable to work there. Because when they're luring in student families with food, the teachers who have already been working a full day of work don't get to eat the food and they're miserable in their jobs. The seed was beautiful. It was a fantastic looking seed. This seed has a lot of promise. We're really excited about this seed. And what kind of fruit did it bear? Uh, bad to mediocre. It was not a great seed. But other people in communities all over the country are doing tiny things that are bearing fruit. And they don't make 60 minutes because nobody cares. This is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is you're eventually going to see a guy on a cross who says, don't worry, even if you see me on a cross, I'm still the ruler. That looks like the worst seed possible, growing into the biggest possible orchard. You've just blown my mind. I don't think I can handle that one. This is what Jesus is trying to prepare his audience with. There's going to come a time where you're going to see sowing, and you aren't going to believe that it's going to produce a fantastic harvest. However, you need to have faith in the sower. You need to have faith in the seed. Don't have faith in the earth, like we said during one of the previous parables. Don't believe in the earth. Believe in the seed. The seed's message, the seed's teaching is going to go out. The leaven that's put in the loaves, it's going to eventually rise. But you can't know now. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And this, Dr. Benton, is where theologians go sideways. It's a big joke. Because if you have not been hearing and absorbing the parables of the kingdom up until now, especially with this powerful metaphor of the wheat and the tares, you're going to immediately jump to some secret knowledge that, you know, was saved for Christians because they're special or some nonsense like this. Now, in context, we see that what is hidden from our eyes, what has always been hidden from our eyes, is the seed that God has sown that we dismissed. We're so busy trying to make sure we have a good, healthy headcount at church. We're counting our understanding of what the wheat is, and we are measuring our success now by a human standard, when it might be the one person who was taught Hebrew in a hospital room that may ultimately become the Lord's mighty tree on Mount Zion that spreads its branches. And by become the Lord's mighty tree, I mean we don't know the fruit of the work that was done for one disciple, what it will result in on the last day. So we get excited about big churches and big crowds and successful campaigns and popular teachers. We get excited about all of this. It's all vanity. It's all dust to dust. Because according to Matthew, it may be that the one who is sowing the mustard seed 
is hidden from your eyes. That teacher and the seed, you don't know. That teacher could be the scorn of teachers in his day. It doesn't matter because the one who serves the kingdom is not interested in, as Paul says, the praise of human beings. We're not interested in human accolades. We're interested in the Lord's judgment and passing his measure and his standard on that day. It's very serious. The people who want the accolades want the fruit now. They want to come to church and get their fruit. Okay, I did this thing. Give me my fruit. Give me my cookie as my reward. No, when you go to church, you go into church as a field. And as you're standing there, as you're hearing the word, you are being sown. The seed is being put into you. But having a seed means nothing until the last day. Will you treasure that seed and take care of that seed by focusing on the fruit that this seed can bear through God's produce? That seed is the parable which has to sit and germinate. It's leaven that has to sit and agitate to do its work inside of our mind in order for us to even grasp it so that through that we can perform the correct action. But until we're producing the correct actions, there is no fruit. The parables, Richard, are in a way iconoclastic because you want Jesus to give you the answer so that you can say, I got it. And once you've got it, you have your statue in your mind. But a parable can't be pinned down so easily. As you said, it has to germinate. You have to work at it. And then even when you start to have some understanding of what it means, I mean, it's an example. It can be understood. Even when you understand it, you're stuck because what it's telling you is that you're stuck. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.